Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 108 of the Podium and Panel Podcast, the no argument episode. Despite the best efforts of Pat and I, there were no oral arguments that could be found that would be of any interest to any of our listeners. There are a couple of Which uh, is to say cases. not interest to us. <laughs> right, right. That's as important as, as anything because we, we have to prepare and have some vested interest in, in the actual cases we're dealing with. So... What we're going to do today is a very brief episode. We'll do three predictions sure to go wrong that we get right and the rule of the week. Uh, now, that's, now that's that's a line I like. Yeah. Three predictions wrong that we got right. That's right. That's that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. Right. Uh, and I, on COVID-19, there wasn't anything. I, I don't recall anything on LinkedIn. I don't recall anything in my feeds. Usually uh, business insurance or other emails I get. We'll have, you know, a Supreme Court decided or a, an appellate. There's nothing going on right now in that. It's kind of dead until the next, yep. uh, you know, until something happens. So uh, with so, that. Something will happen. It just yep. hasn't happened yet. Something will happen. With that, let's go to predictions should go wrong. We're now 163 and a half, 28 and a half and 10 with three wins this week, as we mentioned. The first was from the Seventh Circuit, North American Elite Insurance Company versus Menard, Inc. And Pat, why don't you tell us about this? Uh, order. So this is a case where there's a dispute between North American, which was the which was the carrier for Menard, who had a two million dollar SIR, and the question was whether they had to whether they had this they had the opportunity to settle this case under their within their SIR for like one point nine five million dollars. It ends up things go very badly. They enter into a high low where it's between two and six million. The judgment, come, the verdict comes in at like three million. So it's, re- or sorry, 13 million. It's reduced down to six. And North American says to, you know, Menard, you, you didn't, you, you didn't protect our interests and you, you're, you're liable as an, you know, as an underlying insurer for having, failed to take our interest into account. We told you to settle for the 1.95. You didn't. We don't owe the $4 million in excess of your primary layer. And and we never talk about this at the time. According to the Seventh Circuit, an SIR is not insurance. Right. A deductible is not insurance, according to the Seventh Circuit. Now, we said at the time that's what they were going to say. I, I, I think that is manifestly incorrect under Illinois law. But that is the holding of this case. Uh, one of the things that you do when you get it's a, it, it's a self-insured. The, the word insurance is is in the name, right? Self-insurance. You've chosen. Yes, I understand that the point that Judge Easterbrook makes is this is somebody you, insurance is when somebody else pays for your liability, but they they kind of are by giving you a reduced premium and in exchange allowing you to have control. For that two million dollars, so you choose the lawyers, you choose whether to settle, yada yada, and it, it, it makes no sense to me that the insured in that circumstance 
gets to be cavalier with money that isn't theirs. Right. They were able to settle within the two million. They should have settled within the two million when they had the chance. And if they didn't, then they bear the risk of what happens above that. Now, if if uh, the carrier, you know, if North American had said, "Don't pay the one point nine five," you know, we, we think you're going to get it for under under the two million. Though that's a different kettle of fish. But that's not what happened here. North American said settle, pay the one point nine five, and Menard said no. So I, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't agree with this decision. But we did predict it correctly. Uh, that's what happened. Uh, it's, I, I, I don't understand it because it, it, deductibles and self insured retentions are part of insurance. They are in the insurance agreement itself. I get they're not the usual way we think of insurance, but they are in every way insurance. Anything to add to that discussion, Dan? Well, I think it's important, especially in these uh, risk management type clients that are huge, like here, a $2 million self-insured retention, because most most claims and most issues don't arise to that kind of level to begin with. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, uh, a lot of uh, big Companies, both nonprofits and for profits, will have a quarter million dollar self insured retention on a million dollar limit per occurrence. So it's a, it's a right. significant chunk of money. Like you said, what they trade off for it is they get a cheaper premium and, and they get a little more control, but they're still they're, they're a layer. And so, yeah, I, I think it's wrong, the Seventh Circuit, the way they treat it. But as, as you said, that's, that's how typically and that's traditionally the, the Seventh Circuit has handled it. So that brings us to uh, the second case, Pete versus Green, uh, which is the which is the sanctions case one th- under Supreme Court Rule One Thirty Seven, which is the Illinois version of the Federal Rule of Civil Procedure Rule Eleven. And we learned a lot about the underlying facts of the case in the opinion that was not apparent from the oral argument. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, this opinion in Pete versus Green from the Illinois Appellate Court Fifth District? Sure, Pat. I and I, I scanned the facts, but the the, uh, the this was the case as you mentioned. The defendant uh, had over seventy six thousand dollars in attorneys' fees, costs, and expenses uh, that the defendant incurred during the three and a half years of litigation prior to the appeal, and argued that the thirty five hundred dollars was not a deterrent when punished plaintiff or deter future frivolous lawsuits. And we talked about on the uh, uh, the show. Uh, recently, the uh, there, there's a lot of facts here and a lot of uh, details of what took place. And as you and I talked about on the uh, when we covered this uh, case, uh, you know the, the the rule itself talks about uh, the a filing or brief. And as you and I talked and you uh, weighed in on when we discussed this case, uh, here it's it's ab initio because. This was a statute that we uh, talked about that. Well, it's a uh, statute that, that abolished the tort of alienation of affection. Affection. That is when, right? one guy, when one guy steals another guy's wife. And uh, the yeah. Illinois got rid of that cause of action. And that's, that, that's kind of a big deal when you think about uh, they eliminated a cause of action. So then to file something post that. And then continuously fight for the next four, three and a half, four years over it. 
uh, as we talked about, uh, $3,500 is a pittance and everything here is frivolous because again, we, as we talked about, you can be zealous and represent your clients. You can advocate for uh, a revisiting of law, Change but that's, law. but, but the plaintiff in this case conceded that the statute had run and, and there was some relate back type of argument they made. So. Yeah, I don't think that works. Uh, no. the, the, the alleged, the alleged mis, uh, sexual relations occurred in 2015. The abolition of the cause of action occurred in 2016. And the plaintiff learned from the defendant's wife that the defendant had cheated on the def- defendant's wife with the plaintiff's wife in 2017. <laughs> uh, it's like a soap opera. It's, it a, it, it's, a, it's doctors. And at one point, he sued the, the, the hospital the plaintiff did for keeping this doctor on staff, but of course he worked for an independent uh, business, not for the hospital. The hospital gets out, the case gets removed to federal court at one point uh, and then remanded. And there's a dispute over whether the defendant lied about where he lived. I'm sorry, where the plaintiff lied about where he actually lived. Uh, There's a question over where the tort occurred because in Missouri, the tort of alienation of affection would was abolished in 2003, which is well before the, uh, the circumstances that underlie this case and wouldn't deal with this at all. But this is all decided under Illinois law, not Missouri law. It's quite the quite literally a soap opera. Um, but this guy who che- who 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 does this to this plaintiff now gets his fees back. <laughs> I mean, the plaintiff just might have been better divorcing his wife and being done with it. Uh, That might have cost him much less, but apparently that wasn't the route he wanted to go. And so here we are. I always marvel, uh, not always, but I often marvel, you know, I used to teach insurance law, but a lot of cases we talk about on here, number one, why someone filed the case in the first place, and number two, why they filed appeals in the second place. You know, and, and why why they continue? Well, no, in this case, the appeal was filed by, by the, the defendant. defendant. No, I, I agree. The plaintiff was perfectly willing to pay the thirty five hundred bucks. No, no, I agree. But but, but why you'd file this in the first place? Sometimes it, it just you, you scratch your head on some of these cases and wonder what, what what I guess you know. As lawyers, I guess we we have clients come in they want to pursue, and we try to try to help them. But sometimes it's better left, you know, just out of the out of the spotlight. So, keeping with the theme of what I of of the the right person or the the right person winning for the for a reason that really doesn't seem like justice, I, I will say in each of these cases, the the law the law I think was applied correctly by the court by the court, but I, it just doesn't seem very just. So let's bring us to the third case, which is. Capital construction versus selective insurance, which deals with the targeted tender rule, yeah, which is a case where, yeah, so capital construction was a general contractor. They went to their sub and they said, sub in the contract that said, you need to buy a policy of insurance and name us as an additional insured. Well, the sub goes and buys a policy that says, yes, we will, we, you will, you'll be an additional insured, but unless the contract says we're primary, we're excess. <laughs> and the court says, "Yep, that's fine." So, general, you got to go to your, you got to go. These other carriers have to pay, and not you, because the language of the policy says that you're excess unless you're specifically identified as having to be primary. 
The targeted tender rule is an issue, is, is as we talked about when we discussed this case on episode 103, is a very unique feature of Illinois law. It's a ridiculous rule, frankly, but it's the law. Uh, there's a distinction between, you have to have what's called horizontal exhaustion. So all of the primary, all of the primary layers have to be exhausted before you can go to the excess layer and you can't go and say, I want to target an excess layer of coverage to start picking up the defense because they're excess policies. Excess is excess, primary is primary. They're different things. Never the twain shall meet and so forth. But I, I, I just, it is plain what was intended by the contract uh, between the subcontractor and the general contractor that any policy that they purchased for the CGL would be primary. And I understand it didn't use that word. So what the con what the subcontractor's carrier did is they said, no, it has to be listed as primary in the contract, knowing that no one does that. <laughs> and so they get out from being excess, they get out from being primary or turn into an excess policy. But here's the kicker. The subcontractor had another excess policy. So this carrier ended up selling them two excess policies. <laughs> I, I, it's like, what that, it, it, that just, I, I can't get my brain around that. And, and a lot of and folks may say, well, don't you represent insurers? Don't you want to, so hold it. Who do you think's paying for this? Instead, it's two other insurers. This is insurance companies fighting with each other. And right. this just doesn't seem right to me that they get out from under this, but this is the language. So everyone's going to be rewriting and, their contracts to be able to do this. And, and these excess policies were not like a stack, like you see in the Bermuda towers and other things where it's three over five, five over seven, whatever. It's, it's, uh, yeah. The, the, these not in these construction cases where nah. you've got different, you've got four different subcontractors, right. you've got general contractor, you may have sub subs. They all have towers of insurance. They don't all line up. This is not where it's just one defendant that's got, you know, years ago, I, I was involved in representing the, the Catholic Bishop of Chicago and he's got, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of insurance all the way up to $200 million and perhaps more. I mean, insurance all over the place, four or five different carriers. Um, that's not this. No. There's four or five different carriers, but they're spread out amongst four or five different insurers. And it's, <laughs> it, 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 they don't all kind of neatly, nicely line up. It's, that's not how this works. Nope. So we went 3-0 this week. We did. Uh, we got the law right. No, not much justice in my, in my view. Done, right. uh, done in these decisions, even though they clearly followed the law in each case. <laughs> For sure. Proving once again, the law has nothing to do with justice. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> well, sometimes it does, but that's a coincidence. Uh, so with that, Dan, hopefully we have some arguments coming up as we come out right. of a very, I have not, I have not, in the years I've been listening to oral arguments, I have not come across a dry spell like we've had. We, we called that this might be coming and right. boy, has it hit. I mean, there's been one or two arguments in the Seventh Circuit. There's been obviously nothing in the Supreme Court of the United States. There's been nothing in Indiana courts and very few, and none of the Indiana, Illinois Supreme Court and very little from the uh, Illinois appellate courts. Uh, you know, some nothing of particular interest and just not very much. No. So uh, they are enjoying their summer and writing opinions. So right. there we are. So with that, uh, we will take our leave. Thank you, everybody, oh. for joining us this week. Oh, what? We're going to do a quick uh, rule of the week. Oh, I'm sorry, rule of the week. Yes, yeah. yes. Tell us about the rule of the week. Yes. And uh, uh, as Pat knows, I'm involved with the National Conference of Bar Presidents. Uh, this morning, we were uh, down at the Hyatt 
to discuss the regulation of lawyers and different concepts that are percolating in places like Arizona and Utah. We had a guy from Stanford and the future of the profession talking about some of the data and some of the early things on that. It's too early to tell. Um, and there's, there's questions about, you know, on, uh, non-lawyers practicing law, some, some limited liability. Sharing profits between lawyers and non-lawyers. Sharing profits having, between non-lawyers. Having, having hedge funds and, uh, and uh, third-party litigation funders owe, own law firms or have lawyers work for them and, and litigate their cases, things like that. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, so there's some things that are small, like, you know, and some questions about advertising and stuff. Uh, but what's going to take place on Monday uh, is at the ABA House of Delegates is is related to this, and it's Resolution 402, and it will ask the ABA to affirm, reaffirm its position. That is, quote, the sharing of legal fees with non-lawyers to pass point and the ownership or control of the practice of law by non-lawyers are inconsistent with the core values of the legal profession. The law governing lawyers that prohibits lawyers from sharing legal fees with non-lawyers and from directly or indirectly transferring to non-lawyers ownership or control over entities practicing law should not be revised, end quote. And it's uh, uh, co-sponsored by the Illinois State Bar Association, New York State Bar Association, the New Jersey State Bar Association, the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section, and Solo Small Firm and General Practice Division. And, you know, people think, well, this is something that's a, a refresh from 2000. That's when the resolution was passed. That was when uh, back in those days, the Big Eight or Big Four, whatever it was at the time, it's now Big Three, was talking about uh, accounting firms. The accounting firms were, were talking about this, and as Pat said, there was talk of you know investment banks or whatever, venture capital, having some control, and um, it's back. And so uh, this past week, KPMG announced that they're going to spin off their audit unit. I think it's KPMG, one of the big uh, three left, and then so that they can focus on doing stuff and the legal arena for high net worth individuals and other in businesses and stuff. So it's, uh, it's something that continually comes back and some other countries have different models, but uh, we thought that this would be something, you know, that is, is the rule of the week. Now, Arizona has adopted a rule that they allows non-lawyers to, and, and hedge funds or, or litigation funders to participate, own and participate in, 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 in the practice of law. Um, yeah, but they're very small. Yeah. Violative of this resolution. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, we, we had some data today, I think between Arizona and Utah, there's 57 total companies. I think the Arizona model for these is, is mostly nonprofits are doing that. So it's like, you know, low uh, income types of things. And, and the arguments for some of the uh, changes to the, the sandboxes and regulatory schemes, is the unmet needs of a lot of individuals, but the things that you're talking that that the ownership and non uh, you know non ownership, you know, there's stuff about financing of litigation, but but the concern really is is KPMG or you know uh, Blackstone, they're not going to get into the the foreclosures or evictions at the bottom that that are the unmet needs. If they're going to do it, it's going to be in mergers and acquisitions or high stakes litigation on both sides, right? The plaintiffs is going to be funded and somebody's going to own it and expect a return on their $10 million investment that they're going to get big money back, whatever. So it's a, it's well, an important and issue and will continue to be debated and we'll report next week on what, what happens at the house of delegates. 
I think it's to make it clear the, the any action by the ABA is not legally binding. It's not a, a rule, just like the model rules of professional conduct from the ABA or any of the model codes, they aren't binding. But it's certainly a powerful statement of the of the position of the organized bar on this topic. If the ABA says whatever the ABA says on any number of topics, right? Uh, that it's taken a position on these issues. Uh, it, it, I think the organized bar almost, you know, with very few exceptions, has been opposed to um, sharing of fees with non-lawyers uh, and then the problems with that. I believe that's the way things are done, at least in England, um, and uh, that you can do that. And I think other places in Europe as well, but it's right. just fundamentally different than how the, pra- how the practice of law has been approached in, in the United States to the point where, you know, lawyers weren't allowed to advertise in any great degree until the mid seventies in the United States. Uh, you know, that's obviously changed what only needs to turn on the television or drive down the road or, you know, listen to a radio ad or anything else. But it's, it's the culture, the legal culture in the United States, I think is different than it's been in other countries for better or for worse. That's just how it's been. We'll see if these experiments I think they're experiments only because we're talking about two jurisdictions out of out of fifty one. Um, if, if if the fifty first being DC, of course, which is regulated separately, um, if two jurisdictions out of fifty one, how that goes and and, and whether it works, um, and whatever what whether it works or whatever that means, I'm not sure. I know what that means at, the, at this right. point. So, uh, but if you could strike a balance between access to relieving access to justice issues and and uh, allowing the, the, the hedge funds wanting to get into this business and the other you know, moneyed interests wanting to get into this, uh, then maybe there may be a way to make this make sense. For example, how we do our, how we do IOLTA accounts. You know, what, you know, it, what's, what's an IOLTA account? It's an in, interest on trust accounts of lawyers. Well, where's that interest go? It goes to legal aid. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, we fund legal aid through trust accounts held by attorneys. Um, that's, that's a way in which we try to alleviate the problem of access to justice. And, a, and a, 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 one analogy was used today by, by one of the attendees and they talked about tax returns and they said, you know, I don't get the big three to do my tax returns. I don't have a complicated estate. I use TurboTax. So again, mm-hmm. technology and there, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of sub issues in this whole regular regulation of lawyers from the, you know, from, unlicensed to the, the ownership to changes in marketing to you name it there's all kinds of things and more to come it's a continuous yeah, this debate. is a state by state issue and I, that's you know the regulation of lawyers is done by individual states and and uh, some states you have unified bars Illinois is not one of them uh, where we have a unified bar uh, we have the Illinois State Bar Association is separate from our regulator the uh, which is uh, agency of the Illinois Supreme Court but many states have unified bars. Most states have unified bars. Uh, Florida, for example, where I'm a member. Uh, so it's it, it's different in every state, and I think each state is going to have to deal with it differently. Um, yep. And we'll see what happens. So now we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next week, hopefully with some arguments on the Podium Panel Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. 
please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.